there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. episode, I'm going to be talking about recurrent UTIs, simple cystitis that is recurrent in primary care, the definitions, risk factors, approach to evaluation and management, as well as when to refer to a specialist and to who. One thing I want to start by saying though, is that language is really important here. So commonly in medical literature, we talk about men and women. So recurrent cystitis in women. And unfortunately, One thing that's really important to me and the company Real World NP is that we include all of our patients. Um, And that is not inclusionary. And so really what I'm gonna talk about is anatomy. So what we're talking about here is recurrent cystitis in patients who have a vulva who are assigned female at birth. And the reason for that is because when we only talk about men and women, we are excluding transgendered patients, non-binary patients, and whatever gender expression in between that patients experience. So we're talking about anatomy here, anatomy-based conversations. We're talking about vulvas and recurrent cystitis and bladders and all that stuff. So um, with that said, let's jump in. So definition. So a recurrent UTI, simple cystitis, is defined as more than two infections in six months or more than three infections in one year. And how common is that, right? So I wanna talk about um, one minor thing I wanna add about that is that there's, it's a little bit of an arbitrary language, but there's something, um, or arbitrary time frame, but there's an idea of reinfection versus relapse. And again, this is not like super strongly evidence-based, but the general thought is that if a patient has an infection and within two weeks, has another infection, it's considered a relapse versus if another infection happens outside of that two week window. Um, And the evidence is not like super strong with that, but that's like the general approach to practice. And that's important. So just hold on to that thought. So what are the risk factors for patients with recurrent cystitis? So, and actually I wanna pause real quick. I have an episode about approach to dysuria. Um, Definitely check that out, it's a video episode and I can link to down below this episode. Um, But that is something to think about even before we get to the conversation of recurrent cystitis. You need to be comfortable, first of all, that it is actually cystitis, right? Because dysuria can actually be a whole host of other things. Um, So definitely check out that episode. And I believe in that episode, I miss, I put it in the updates, I think that I did not include um, STI as a differential. So make sure you include that as your differential for dysuria. But anyway, if we're talking about, we've already gone through that process, we've confirmed that it is a simple cystitis, not a complicated cystitis, Um, where do we go from there? So what are the risk factors for these? So this happens all the time. And I just wanna kind of debunk some information that is really widely out there. So one, the, the really like evidence-based things that we know that can increase the risk for recurrent cystitis is sexual intercourse. Increased frequency of sexual intercourse is associated with potentially more 
recurrent cystitis. You don't really have a great definition for what that means, like more, more sexual intercourse in quotes, right? Um, spermicide use, and that includes like manual spermicide, but also spermicide that is already like um, a part of condoms. So that's, I think, really important to think about because I don't hear a lot of patients using spermicide separately, but there are a lot of condoms that include spermicide. So that is something to keep in mind. Those two things have evidence to support that that is associated with increased risk of recurrent cystitis. Things that do not have evidence-based associations are basically everything else that we always talk about with patients. So um, pre and post-coital voiding patterns, like do they urinate before or after intercourse, right? Not necessarily evidence-based. Frequency of urination, not necessarily evidence-based. Delayed voiding habits, wiping habits, meaning like wiping front to back or not. Um, use of hot tubs, douching, using use of pantyhose or tights, um, and um, patient's body mass index. Really, there isn't evidence to support that those are actual real risk factors. And I say that because it's like wild. I feel like we just talk about this all the time with patients. Um, and I have some more thoughts about it to add about when we talk about management and interventions. But just know, I just want to say that because I think one of the things I was reading about is like, and it really highlighted, we don't want to like guilt patients. We don't want to like put them as responsible for things that are not even evidence-based, right? If we're, if we're having bias for, uh, of, uh, towards a patient who has a BMI of 35, who's getting recurrent UTIs, and we're like, oh, well, you know, it actually is related to your body weight. First of all, it's not factual. Second of all, that's bias, right? So we want to be really mindful of these conversations of like, what is evidence-based and what is not, right? So um, I also want to add another risk factor for patients who are post-menopausal, um, uh, things like uh, incont uh, incontinence or cystocele, especially in postmenopausal patients, is more associated with cystitis. Like postmenopausal status can potentially increase that risk as well. I also want to add that there are biologic and genetic factors, and it's just this broad, non-specific thing of like, you know what, some people just get them, and it's not your fault, and you're doing the best you can, right? And I say that because so many patients that I see with this issue are really frustrated, and they feel like they're doing so much. Right, so just I just wanna lay that down there, of the actual evidence, right? So let's talk about the evaluation. It's important to have evidence that we've diagnosed an actual cystitis two to three times, right? In that two, two times in six months or three times in the course of a year, because we don't wanna dupe ourselves into thinking that somebody has cystitis when actually we haven't really investigated the cause of their dysuria in the first place, right? So number one, especially as a new grad, don't forget to do that. Number two, it's helpful to have those urinalysis and culture evidence of like their actual infection um, before we kind of continue forward with some of the more risky options for treatment and management. But um, definitely starting with that. And again, keeping in mind what I said about relapse infections versus recurrent, right? Did it just happen again within the course of that two week span or did it happen a couple of weeks or months later? But in terms of evaluation next steps, like I think there might be some misinformation about there and general practices out there that are not necessarily evidence-based either. So when it comes to like, oh, should I really, should I, should I talk about management and think about some of the treatment options for somebody just based on that alone, or do they need further imaging or referrals? And so the evidence supports that people, you have to look at the history and the exam and think about what the reasons for referral would be. So if you have somebody who has known cystocele or they have um, a urinary incontinence or other known urologic conditions, absolutely they need to see urology or urogynecology depending on the issue. Um, some other things we wanna think about is like, 
basically what you're looking to send them to a specialist for is are there any causes of like functional or structural abnormalities, right? Are there kidney stones that are impairing the urinary flow, which is causing these recurrent UTIs, right? Do you have suspicion symptom-wise, like why you would think that? So signs that you would um, see something like that are relapsing infection, right? So they have an immediate infection within that two week period. They have blood on their urinalysis after they've finished their treatment. And by the way, if you have trouble with interpretation of urinalysis, absolutely come join us in the lab interpretation crash course. We get all into that and it is absolutely magical. Um, Proteus, if you have proteus on the urinalysis um, and culture recurrently, that's more associated with kidney stones. So those are potential like signs of, um, or if they have history of stones in the past, those are all potential reasons to send to urology. Um, and that is your primary person that you're gonna send to when you refer these patients out. But not everybody needs um, a, a CT scan or um, a renal ultrasound or a renal and uh, bladder ultrasound. Not everybody needs that imaging, those are the risk factors though that you would consider or the symptoms you would consider sending to urology where they likely would do those tests versus you would do those tests and then it would be incumbent upon you to interpret them. I've talked about that in a couple of episodes, but just make sure whenever you order a test, it is in alignment with the culture of your practice and is um, you know, approved or supp you're supported by your collaborating providers. Okay, let's talk about some management. So um, behavior changes, as I've said, the risk factors are a little bit shaky on the evidence. So when it comes to the management of behavioral interventions, it's also a little bit shaky, right? But we're telling all these people to do all these things. The, the moral of the story in terms of the standpoint of, of, of organizations like American Neurological Association and, and other ones like that is that if there are things that are not going to harm them, like cranberry pills or cranberry juice, right, or pre and postcoital voiding, those are not harmful interventions. They may or may not be helpful, right? It's not that it's not helpful, it's just we just don't have the evidence. And I think that's really important for us to understand, especially as newer clinicians, like, it's about the evidence. What does the evidence tell us? And then even if we don't have the evidence, it's like, is this gonna harm somebody? No, so it's, it's, it's fair for them to consider. So that also brings up that question of hygiene, the wiping from front to back, um, not necessarily evidence-based, but it's not necessarily gonna hurt them, so it's something to try, right? But if it's not helping them and they're getting frustrated, it's not necessarily, right? Like you just have that conversation with them. Increased fluid intake may have some more evidence, so making sure that they have adequate fluid intake, like two liters of water a day, again, depending on their comorbidities. Someone with heart failure, you wanna tread really lightly, right? Um, and then just making choices about spermicides, right? And looking potentially into condoms with spermicide if they are a person that is using condoms in sexual intercourse, that could potentially be a helpful intervention because we know that that's a risk factor. So if we talk about the other interventions we can do for management, you may or may not have seen this already, but many people take topical, um, postmenopausal patients can take topical estrogen um, and that has thought to be that that is thought to return the vaginal flora to a more optimal state, and so that's the rationale for trying that. You want to think about that for postmenopausal patients if that's appropriate for their whole risk factor history. So, right, just like don't just automatically do that. Think about is it safe for them to have estrogen? The other piece is using antibiotics, and I think that it's really easy for us to be like, you know what, let's just take some antibiotics, it'll be fine. One of our jobs, though, is to think about the risks. And unfortunately, medications always come with risks. So just 
Hold that thought while I talk about the treatment options. So the three options are taking antibiotics um, preventatively at a lower dose on a consistent basis, number one, uh, like continuous, post-coital, number two is another option. If they find for this particular patient, they always get their cystitis after intercourse. Um, that's another option. Um, there is some evidence of self-treatment, but I don't have a ton of evidence for that. So just, I usually just do the post-coital and the, or the continuous depending on the patient. Um, and then the three options, I'm not going to give doses here on this channel because, um, on the podcast and the videos is because those things change, but it's typically a half dose or a lower dose of medications like nitrofurantoin, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, that is quite a mouthful for the generic. And then uh, cephalexin is another kind of like third line option. And I think, I just want you to keep in mind that none of them come without risks. So nitrofurantoin, for example, can have some pulmonary reactions or hepatitis or neuropathy. It has been studied long-term use of about 12 months. Um, but unfortunately, when you stop taking it, the things can come back. It's not preventative for keeping it at bay forever. Um, and then Bactrim, same thing, rash, nausea, vomiting, hepatitis, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia. Those are some of the risk factors of giving Bactrim. And so you just have to keep that in mind when you are talking about it with patients, right? Because it's not like, oh, this is like an easy solution, right? We wanna, we wanna just think about that. So when we start those management options, we do wanna confirm they don't have an active infection with a culture showing more than 100,000 colonies of bacteria because that's a different intervention than like the lower dose of the continuous or post-coital options. Um, and then the other thing is if we decide to do that, great, if we feel comfortable. If we don't feel comfortable, let's send them to urology. So again, let's recap when we will send them. When the lab or urine tests are, um, they're not like what you're expecting or they're, or they're confusing or they have that hematuria um, after the infection has cleared up. Um, if you're worried about some sort of functional, structural, urologic condition, if you feel like they might need some imaging, if they're having that relapsing versus recurrent type of infection, so coming back within that two weeks, um, or if you have started prophylactic treatment and it's still not working. I think one pearl I wanted to add in here real quick is that um, I had a patient one time who had recurrent UTIs and um, she had actually had uh, sugar in her urine. And so what happened is that she did not have diabetes. She just had, um, uh, I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head the medical word for um, uh, sugar in your urine, but that's just like, it. she went to urology, she went to nephrology. They're like, you know what, you're, you're just getting rid of a lot of sugar in your urine for no reason and you have no diabetes. So you're gonna take continuous um, antibiotics and that was necessary for her. So again, really depends on the patient you're assessing, the lab results, and um, all of those pieces. So hopefully you feel more comfortable with recurrent UTIs. If you have not grabbed the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, have it head over to realworldnp.com guide. You get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hang in there. I'll see you soon. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, 
patient stories and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.